0: Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace.
1: Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region.
0: No one country can solve this problem. There's
2: really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time.
0: Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change. Your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Piccola. Well, hello, I am Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Piccola. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. The show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about this personal side of climate change, particularly their emotional responses and how they make sense of this big issue. And today we're very lucky to have a guest.
2: And I'm Susie Moser, and it's just a delight to be here with the two of you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And Pamu and uh, I both know uh, Susie and her work. We've followed her. She's been a leader in this this kind of area mm-hmm. of climate climate change, climate psychology, understanding our emotions and feelings about climate for quite some time. And um, she's been doing all kinds of innovative work. And so we're glad to have her. And we're gonna have a
1: conversation about that uh, today. Um, Pano, do you wanna get us started? Mm. Warmly welcome Susie. it's such a pleasure to have an um, opportunity to discuss with you. So We've met in person in Finland actually, yeah. uh, you've been an active active keynote speaker on, on topics such as climate change communication and adaptation and lots of things related to the human mind and psychosocial is- issues but should should we start with history, would you like to share some <laughs> of your journey, that's, how, how did you en- end up in all this and all yeah. the stuff related to climate emotions?
2: Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question. Um, I actually think it goes, for me, way back into the late 1980s, Um, you know, the the sort of when it first became a topic in public conversation, obviously, relatively, you know, late after it's become a scientific issue. But um, at that point, I I was a student um, of geography, and I studied earth sciences, and you know, my my climatology teacher um, was quite interested already in it, but you know, my geology teacher said, "Yeah, nothing to worry about." You know, Earth has gone through mm-hmm. climate change, whole bunches of times. So that was sort of my my first scientific introduction, and and then I was just really curious um, studying it myself. And I don't know when I started to realize, my God, what are we talking about? It just It just hit me for the first time, probably in the early 1990s, um, what it would mean. I studied um, the impacts of storms on coastal regions. I visited coastal regions. I saw what that devastation is like. And, you know, I looked at sea level rise, a a curve that is just going up no matter what we do. I mean, it, it matters what we do in terms of how steep it goes up, but it will go up for millennia. and. Yeah, most of us on this planet live in coastal areas, and it just became very clear to me from the start that, you know, while this might be the hardest thing to talk about, it is actually going to be one of the most impactful things that human species has ever experienced. And mm-hmm. and then I just, you know, I tried to communicate that. I was awful at it in the beginning myself (laughs) typical scientist you know starting with pretty Mm -hmm. much the beginning of of time to explain Mm -hmm. things and losing people in five minutes (laughs) so yeah i so i had to learn some hard lessons about that and and then really you know once i started to get interested in the question of how do we communicate it i mean the whole point of the Communication at that time was to get better at it. Essentially, to mobilize people, and oftentimes people used fear, they used guilt, they used all kinds of emotional, you know, uh, ways to to get us off our seats, off of our butts. And and I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is this is dangerous territory. Um, the way we're doing this, and you know, as a science communicator, I was trained to forget emotions, put them aside, and it just felt completely wrong to me to do that. So, that's kind of how I first got got interested in the emotional side of climate change. And in fact, you know, a lot of what I've done since is is a follow-on to this to, to fully recognize and appreciate that it's actually a, a very healthy response mm-hmm. and a very normal, non-pathological response how we how we react emotionally, psychologically mm-hmm. to an existential threat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'll stop there for, you know, it gives you probably lots of things to, to start uh, poking into. But anyway, that's yeah. how I started.
0: Well, one of the things I'm really interested in and we talk about is environmental identity, you know, which comes out of conservation psychology, but this idea of our, our sense of self in relation to nature and the natural world. So mm-hmm. you're, but you're, I'm guessing if you go even farther back, do you, you, can you think of things that formed your environmental identity, even younger, your connection with nature in the natural world? Cause I, I, I seem, it yeah. seems to me, you must've had some inner, inner motivation to push through on some of this. Cause you must've felt marginalized at the beginning when you were, when you were starting. Um, I'm just wondering is your, when you look back now, particularly with your insights and then your larger life story and early development, can you see any turning points? Around nature and your connections
2: well it was my saving grace to have you know a backyard a large mm-hmm. backyard to go back into and <laughs> i mean that was for me the safe place to be it wasn't a scary place to be it was you know it was just where i felt most at home and so that's been true for me throughout my my life um but certainly in my in my upbringing probably my interest in that um and my, my desire to protect nature and all those things, they mm-hmm. probably go back to my early childhood. Um, and then I just professionalize it by, you know, choosing geography, the one topic that mm-hmm. I thought I wasn't going to get bored with. Um, given, given the size <laughs> and the complexity and of, of many dimensions of Earth with all its people on it, and geography is just perfect for that. So, those were some key choices that I, I made around that. Um, and then the psychological really came out of my own you know, introspection, my own reflectivity, and um, my own experience of, of nature and, and how I experienced hearing about climate change. And what it would, you know, imagining mm-hmm. forward mm-hmm. what that would mean mm-hmm. for all of us. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing all that. That's very fascinating to to hear. And uh, how did it go in relation to? To co- coping with all all of this and during those times, nineteen nineties and early two thousands, when you, you said that some, somewhere around the early nineteen nineties you you woke up more profoundly to how severe the climate crisis actually is, and yeah. then you had some of these quite pioneering ventures. So, how did that that, that go? And mm. did you find some allies at some point? Or? Mm.
2: Yeah, at some point, but not early on. <laughs> so early on, mm. it it you know felt mm. like I was pretty much alone with um, my emotional response. And quite frankly, you know, I probably only let myself go not very deep into that um, Uh because it felt overwhelming. Um, And it was probably in the early 1990s that I discovered Joanna Macy's work. um, And that was essential for me. Um, In fact, actually, it was probably the late 1990s because in the early 2000s, um, I took two long uh, trainings with her and, um, you know, led me to to actually also lead and integrate the work of that reconnects into my work. Um, mm-hmm. But that was the first time I actually felt like there were companions uh-huh. in this journey. You know, I wasn't alone with the grief. Um, and, you know, and I will say it's still for most of my daily life a fairly lonely journey in Mm. that in the sciences at least it is so unconventional to still unconventional to actually name your emotions about the things you study Mm. um so you know i have to i know now where my my allies are and the 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 the, Mm -hmm. you know the allyship has grown in the sense of having simply the the fact of climate emotions being talked about um more often Mm -hmm. in you know all your guests are (laughs) you too (laughs) are like you know part of Mm -hmm. that uh that larger field. So that's changed the the context, but sort of my my daily life it, it is still, you know, not something I spend all my time in. I don't know if you're Aware, or your listeners might be interested. There's a documentary um, that was made, and I was in it. uh, it, The documentary is called "Once You Know," and it um, actually traces the journey of the filmmaker, but it includes the journeys of scientists who, you know, take the emotional side of their work seriously. And how do they live with that? And how do they um, integrate that or or cope with that, and also use it um, in a way to you know, infuse and fuel their work um, in in really wonderful ways. So that that was an interesting experience and it sort of has grown my own community of people that I can speak to about these things Mm. uh, a little more substantially.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing sharing all all that and Joanna Macy's name has been mentioned in this podcast also several several times and we are planning to do an explicit episode on on this work that reconnects that you mentioned and it's the name of the uh, she and others de- developed and, uh, that's been hugely influential for my, my work also. And many regard me as an el- elder in all work around eco emotions or whatever we call them, or just, you know, our emotional response to what's happening in the world. There was the threat of nu- nuclear war in the 1980s. And mm-hmm. she and some others were also active in facing the affective res- response mm-hmm. to that. that so.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think she's she one of the, the crucial elders, at least for very pragmatic kind of, you know, work. Like, how do we work with these emotions, right? How do we not sit alone with these emotions, but connect with others and, and are held in community in in doing the deep emotional grief and um, working through that? And by that, I don't mean to, you know, get rid of it, right? But to, to honor it and... Mm-hmm. Um, and to find a renewed energy and power to go back in in the world and engage with it as opposed to be paralyzed and and disappear. And she has been probably one of the most influential um, people in my work. The other one is Bill Plotkin, and I know you have also um, Mm. mentioned him in your podcast before his work, I think um, in many ways gets at the root causes of why we have something called climate change in mm-hmm. the first place. And so that to me has been very, very influential as well.
0: Yeah. So this all gets to this idea of eco-psychology. These are all this this idea of really revisioning what our sense of psychology even is in, in relation to being on the planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it. Um, so I want to stay a little bit just for a moment with the science communication piece, only because we have, if listeners... It's a paradox, I think, uh, Susie. You there is there is way more resources and support for science teachers or researchers or your students who do, you know, who are feeling obviously all the feelings that are coming with this work. But as I t- even now, as I tell people and students, you still kind of have to be a pathfinder, you know. So you, you so what I'm hearing from you is that even even now, even at your level. It still can be lonely at times and you're still having to be a bit of a pathfinder. And I think that's just an important thing for listeners to to take in. And that kind of will, could be a segue to our, you know, to our adaptive mind conversation in a moment. But it, it sounds like that's just the nature of it still. Um, it's better than it was 20 years ago, but still difficult.
2: Yeah, I think we're in a, you know, we're, we're really trying to change culture. Yeah right when you think about the scientific or technical professions it is very uncommon to bring emotion your whole cells into the conversation into your work right we're we're supposed to be you know, heads on a stick, <laughs> but that's just that's just not who we are. And in fact, you know, all the the conversation we've heard, had in recent years about storytelling is is all about that, right? It is actually re-embodying ourselves into a larger fabric of who we are as people, what our identities, how it changes through um, the experiences we have in life, and and how it is held in community, and so. You know, science has essentially asked us to to make it a professional pride to dissociate Mm. from ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I mean, in your profession, Thomas, you would call it pathological. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we've made it a a matter of credibility Mm. to be that emotion-free. And I think what we're beginning to see is it's to the detriment of of the mental health and well-being of the people doing the work yeah so you know i don't think emotion disqualifies me as a scientist Mm. you know i think it is the the more repressed Mm. our emotions are the more they actually influence us unconsciously and actually that makes for bad science (laughs) Yeah. so i think the more self-aware and Mm. and um Clear, we are about you know w- how else we are impacted by what we know. The more effective we can be in analysis and in synthesis of an understanding, scientific understanding, and also more effective in communication.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's great wisdom, I think, and really, really important. And there's such a range of issues here. There's this whole idea of Western science, especially since the Enlightenment period, and all the complexities also around gender. These developments when yep. reason was mm. studied to be seen as, as masculine and good and emotion was started to be seen as feminine and weak and uh, there's very, very long history yeah. of ideas, developments here, here behind this and just to give the listeners a, a clue of them scope of Susie's work, so there's both uh, writings about communication and how it's important to pay not only attention to emotions in general, but also to the difficult ones. And that was really rare in the 2000s, and when I started my work on difficult eco-emotions, that was very important source, source material. But you've also done, because of your uh, expertise in adaptation, uh, sort of feel, field work. There's some articles where you are actually, uh, you know, drawing on people's experiences that you have met, for example, mm-hmm. along the, along the coastlines. And there's the philosophical things around concepts of hope and dis- despair, for example. So that's something that I highly appreciate in any any scientist or thinker. And in, in this case, this case you, but just wanted to give some glimpses to the, to the readers about yeah. the various things.
0: Yeah, and I feel less lonely when we're having these conversations, too, because I think about this stuff all the time as well. Um, hmm. You know, Susie, early on in our planning, you talked about diff- some different emotions that you were curious about and you know this 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 uh adaptive mind this idea of how how do we kind of create this world that we need you want to talk about some specific emotions or some specific things that you want to kind of get into you know we have some time to chat let's what's, what's what, what are you curious about
2: yeah so maybe i could just you know first start by just saying what i mean by the adaptive mind as a just so people understand where that comes from so you know, besides the, as you, as Panu just mentioned, besides the work in communication, I've done a lot of work in adaptation, mostly in coastal areas. And, you know, early on, I was a handful of us working on this. And around 2006, after Al Gore's movie came out, all of a sudden people realized we cannot um, just mitigate um, climate change. We actually also just have to live with some of the now unavoidable consequences, So, lots of people started to enter the field of adaptation around 2005, 2006 when that came out. About 10 years after, um, I started to hear people at conferences just take me aside and say, you know, let's have a drink, whatever. And they would just say, and how do you deal with this all the time? You know, people started to just in confidence basically ask me how to emotionally cope with what they see every single day. I mean... Others have said this before, but it's essentially when your day job is to look the apocalypse in the face every single day, how do you cope with that? Um, And then people started to say, well, it's not just that, but, you know, I need to give talks to people who are traumatized from the most recent flooding or from the most recent wildfire. What's trauma-informed work in adaptation? Um, You know, people started to talk, yeah, and it's deeply interconnected with all the intersectional challenges that communities face, race and poverty and, you know, the whole rest of it, right? And so those people were really looking for skills to help this deep transformative shift that we need to go through. And that is both a shift socially, economically, but it's also in our relationship to the environment, right? And and how we relate to each other. So out of that sort of set of needs, I basically said, you know, I want to work on that. I want to think about what are Support mechanisms. What are skill building opportunities we can create? Because you don't learn that in engineering school or in in planning yeah. school. Or you know, if you're a climate scientist, you don't get the the lowdown on how to avoid burnout. Right. <laughs> anyway, th- those are the kinds of contexts that lots of people in the scientific and technical communities didn't have the skills to deal with the this constant traumatic and transformative. Cha- change that people are facing. So, out of that basically was birthed this idea of the adaptive mind, and it's a project that that is aimed at skill building, at, at building those capacities. And, you know, one of the first things that I come across again and again in this work um, is first people just arrive exhausted. Mm-hmm. They're just completely fried. And so, much of what we do in the beginning of our training cycle is to help people just reconnect with themselves, reconnect with each other, reconnect to nature, just as a baseline, just to, to kind of, you know, get to a place where they can even take in learning about new skills. You can't learn when you're completely fried. And the next step in that often then is about having that Community-held space for climate emotions, and it, it can be anything, right? Grief is often in there, um, probably do not dominantly, but also anger and and anxiety and fear for what happens to the children, you know, whatever. So it's it's a wide range of experiences people face, um, and you know, we we basically then hold that space for people to have that experience and what inevitably happens is when people actually have space for their emotions they don't get stuck in them they actually then are able to you know think clearly again right Uh coming back to the work of joanna (laughs) Macy, you see with new eyes you have opportunities then to connect with others and think differently about how do i address this more fundamentally than you know just putting one band-aid after another that just Dries me up. So that's kind of, you know, what we're trying to do there. And yeah, so the climate emotions are, and, and really holding space for that with some skill is really essential in that work, because that's the part that no one gets.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking of our episode with um, of Scott Ordway, the composer who made the, made the, uh, the has been making music about the wildfires in his home and, and the, the, his discussion Listeners can go to that season two episode ten. His discussion of how when he played that piece of music for the community, you know that was that was damaged by the fires. How how cathartic that was, and how how healing that was. So that was a that was an artistic yeah. take on a similar kind of kind of coping. Um,
2: yeah. Well, it's such a beautiful thing too to you know tap into things that are nonverbal, right? To get into a whole different part of our brains to you know it taps parts of us much more easily than if i say oh would you like to you know express your grief mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it 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 just you know it's much more difficult to do that in that way whereas music can take you there in like 2 seconds you know yeah so, I think that and and imaginative ways of opening to a different future. I know you've talked a lot with people about hope in your series of podcasts here. I always think you know if we can't imagine a better future, like why bother with hope? I mean, mm-hmm. right? You need to open that up and and art, other forms, all forms of art can help um, open that, so that's actually another part of what we do in in our adaptive mind work
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And I think meaning then comes out of this work. Ultimately, you know, my life has some significance. Things start to make sense. I have a purpose. Do you see that, Susie, coming out in this, in the process that you're describing? You know, that how the how this this how these kind of emotional openings and space holdings then allow people to start to have a sense of meaning. You know, repair their meaning making.
2: You know, it's actually, in my experience, um, in this particular piece of the work, um, a central question. Many people don't burn Mm -hmm. out just because they haven't had a vacation in a while or because there have been too many disasters that they had to attend to. But they burn out because their work doesn't make sense anymore. You know, like, why should I bother? And, And... And drain myself doing it with something that just feels like completely irrelevant, um, in light of the magnitude. And, you know, lots of that has to do with our very obscure and strange sense of self in Western society, right? As individuals, we are often thinking of ourselves only as individuals, as opposed to part of a collective. That's a certain big, big part of the, the problem of why we Keep burning out, but also, you know, so much of our work has become a, a very narrow um, and mechanistic way of fitting into a machine that we don't actually want to be part of, right? It's the machine that actually mm-hmm. creates all this problem in the first place. And you know, like, imagine for example, you're a sustainability director in a in a urban community, and your work is to try to build trust with, you know, underserved communities, marginalized communities, right? Your police department next door is hitting those same people with batons mm-hmm. or worse, yeah. right? Like it makes no sense to be part of that community and yet you want to help, you want to do something. So You need skills to navigate and change the system that you're in. At the same time, that you want to be effective in actually in those interactions with people who are not trustful, who are afraid for very good reason. So, anyway, those are the you know the kinds of real life situations um, that many people in my line of work find themselves in, and Mm -hmm. who just don't know how to address it. And the question of meaning is is absolutely central how do i bring myself at the deepest level to to the repair work to the restorative work to the healing work that needs to happen on this planet yeah
1: well said well said yeah yeah truly truly so and as you too know meaning has been a very key concept in my my work yeah. work also and perhaps thomas we should, should do one episode explicitly on, on on me meaning and various takes on it i don't mean any you know academic philosophical discussion but the lived lived experiences of meaning and sort of different types of meaning that are changing now, and some of them related, for example, to the felt significance of our work, mm-hmm. which Susie mm-hmm. has com- commented he- here. So, and speaking of sticks and carrots, which is a very yeah. simple metaphor for <laughs> communication, uh, it's, it's not straightforward, but uh, meaning can be an important carrot in that, that sense, because if, if people see that those people who are willing to try to face reality and feel the emotions and do things for the community and the planet, if they see uh, lived meaningfulness and sense of meaning in those communities and people, that's going to be very, very motivating. And Then, of course, what is needed is also pathways mm-hmm. to, to become part of those communities so that it's not an in-group, out-group thing. But uh, does that spark something in, in your mind, Susie?
2: Well, I feel you know that's actually at the heart of what makes communication work, right? As opposed to just communicating and conveying a number of scientific facts, right? That's what I used to do, sort of just, you know, can I find the best word possibly to convey the end of the world as we know it, you know, in some factoids that people can remember or that sticks in their minds. but really when you think about any talk any moving event or keynote or whatever that you have heard it is when people are touched in their hearts and their deepest own concerns about what is my life about why am i here you know and and can you in some ways connect to that part through story or you know whatever it is and and ask people to to be in the world from that place. It's a very different proposition than how do I communicate, you know, certain parts per million mm-hmm. and the temperature curve, right? I am asking people to reconsider how do you want to be on this planet while you are here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: And in my experience, I can tell them very frightening information and very uplifting information. And it, you know, and still have people walk out with hope when I have touched that place. yeah. Mm-hmm. If I haven't done that, yeah. it was a lost opportunity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for our listeners who are listening, I mean, we're again, this fly on the wall in this conversation, we all, I think one of the takeaways is that, um, you know, working with meaning is like swimming in deep water. You know, we, we have it and then we lose it and then we'd be at rural K temporarily. Losing our meaning because this work is difficult and it is all you know irrational, like you say, the the world is absurd, and so we have these periods of, not, of of losing meaning. But then, if we can go to the emotions and be with other people and share these emotions, then that then that kind of cycles us back, probably to the meaning. So I think for young listeners, in particular, you know, um, as Susie and Panu can can. Um, verify, you know, we, we lose our meaning. We, we think we have it and we try to work and it becomes difficult. We get burned out and then we, we, we go through that time and then we recover our meaning. Right. So that's a, that's a takeaway for the listeners, right? Uh, all these cycles.
2: Can can I build on that? Sure. It's so you said it's absurd. I don't think the world is absurd. Uh-huh. <laughs> fair enough.
0: Fair enough. And,
2: and, <laughs> and so for me, what becomes, or when we temporarily might think that way, I think that's the moment when the frame through which we look at the world is too small to hold it, to to actually make sense of it. We are invited in that moment into a bigger frame. So, when I'm in a bigger way to understand what's happening, then even this descent, you know, or even this falling apart of Western society makes sense to me for other people who, you know, are still holding on to that particular frame. It's terrible. And it makes no sense, su- you know, why, why bother living, right? But when you see it in the larger frame of, say, this is an archetypal uh, movement where smaller self-definitions have to necessarily crumble, make space for something different, right? And you then discover something new. So it's not even remake recovering mm. meaning. It is making a whole new meaning. Like you come out differently after that. And I think we as a society, I hope, we as humanity will come out very different um, when we are through this transformational Rough spot that we're in at the moment, um, and you know, hopefully, get to being a very different way on the planet. I mean, from a you know, as Joanna Macy would say, from a life-defying or life-destroying way of being to a life-supporting, life-restoring, life-enhancing force on the planet. I always love to think, you know, can we keep the Anthropocene to a really, really thin layer? goes back to my <laughs> geological training, right? Like, can we keep that to a really thin layer and then become a force on the planet that actually helps to rebuild life?
1: Mm. Yeah.
2: I don't know. As opposed to destroy it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great vision, as uh, as it has been said. We need need v- visions and uh, things that we can we can hope hope for, and this yeah. certainly is one that I'm I'm in for.
2: Well, we're supposed to, you know, Homo sapiens sapiens, mm-hmm. the white wise ones, <laughs> no. right? We're not anywhere near the wise ones, so I think it's time for us to still become the species we could become.
0: That's a great pl- that's a great place to to close out today. I mean, uh, on a, on this. This growthful vision, Um, I do want to, we'll share some of the links to that documentary you mentioned, Susie, and to some of your work, and I could easily see having you back again for another time to continue this conversation. Obviously, there's so much we could go into, (laughs) Sure. but um, I hope the listeners got something out of today, both young listeners, science, science uh, folks, folks working on adaptation, helping communities to live in the in the world of climate change um and i really appreciate your work susan i wish you the best and i hope you uh, hope you have success in the next little bit here
2: thank you so much it's wonderful to be with both of you and yes to be continued
0: all right well take care of yourselves Mm. bye-bye Boom. thanks susan the climate change and happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.